Welcome to the Accord Research Alliance podcast, where we talk with innovators who are committed to measuring what matters in Christ-centered relief and development. I'm Rodney Green, and I'm the Program Advisor for Agriculture and Economic Development at World Relief. Thank you for joining us. I'm here with Brian Gouge, a research analyst at Global Scripture Impact, and Matthew Kistler, also a research analyst from Global Scripture Impact. Uh, Brian is a licensed professional counselor with a master's degree in counseling psychology and a doctorate of philosophy in international psychology with a focus on trauma services. Uh, Matthew worked with Mennonite Central Committee in Kenya for a number of years and also previously served as interim director of the Program for International Development at Eastern University, which is a master's program. And we're, I'm both really excited to talk to, to both of these guys. And so welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. Uh, Brian, maybe we could start with you. Um, what got you interested in this type of work? Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, sure. Um, I think I, I probably got um, most um, interested in, in doing this kind of work pretty early on. Um, I went on a, as, as a high schooler, I went on you know, some short-term missions trips and was a missionary kid and, and uh, ended up seeing kind of a lot of really great uh, ministry going on and, and, and also seeing a lot of um, like unintended harm being done in, in different, in kind of in different um, contexts. And, and I really got interested in Kind of the idea of, I'm not sure, like you know, the, the the perfect way to say this, but kind of bringing a real like sense of um, accountability and research-focused um, exploration into the kind of work that we're doing, really to get a sense of how you know it's landing cross-culturally and if it's um, if it's doing a lot to you know build relationships in a in a, in a healthy way. Um, and, and that was sort of kind of how I got into it and then sort of focused my, um, studies around that. And so I started out as a clinician and, and was working in different contexts within this, within the States with, um, within, um, homeless populations and people experiencing homelessness. And then that kind of took me abroad and in, in a lot of different areas, doing some research on how, um, trauma interventions get implemented in post-conflict areas. And that brought me here to American Bible Society. And I should just mention that Global Scripture Impact is sort of a, a team within American Bible Society. And we're on the monitoring, evaluation, and learning team. Well, that's great, Brian. I'm, I'm sure we could we could spend a whole other session just kind of exploring some of your experience um, and with trauma services and, and different contexts. Um, Matthew, uh, what about you? Tell us a little bit more about yourself as well. Yeah, so uh, I got a... My undergrad degree was actually in math and economics, so most of the guys here let me do the quantitative stuff. <laughs> They're a little allergic to Excel, but that's okay. Um, but So my career path was kind of looking at being an economist. Um, I dreamt of being an advisor to the president. Um, but at one point, God kind of redirected me. I was doing data crunching and was really not super excited about it, so I went kind of got attracted to the MA program at Eastern. Uh, David Bronkema there recruited me, and it was 
really a place that I felt like God was moving. So after doing that MA program, I went to Kenya for three years uh, with Mennonite Central Committee with my wife. And as I was kind of there, and then when we came back and I started working at Eastern in that same program, the thing that really stuck out to me as something I really enjoyed to do was program design, program learning, program evaluation. I love the kind of opportunity that exists when you are designing an intervention. Um, there's so much creativity that you can put into a project that can influence how, what kind of impact it has. And so I think if we are open to learning, we can always improve what we do. And that's something that excites me. So that was kind of the area where I've been focusing on. And that's kind of our primary role here uh, at American Bible Society. So I'm really excited about this work. And uh, I just joined about seven months ago. But uh, we have a great team here and really enjoy what we do. Um, Rodney, can I ask a quick question? Yes, go ahead. Um, Matt, would you still like to serve as the advisor to the president for um... – <laughs> Yeah, I've thought about that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just Yeah, yeah just... no, I, I'm an equal opportunity advisor. Okay. You know, but my, my father kind of taught me the value of uh, staying at the table and being a voice of uh, – being, being true to your voice no matter the context. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Um, and you never know, maybe you'll have an opportunity in, in the coming years to, to do just yeah, that. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, just set us up, Rodney. Just connect us. <laughs> all right. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll put it on my to-do list. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, uh, Matthew, your, your kind of discussion on uh, learning and monitoring and, and program design kind of leads us into our topic, really, that we're going to unpack today, which I'm really excited about. Um, I've learned that, that you both have been involved in uh, using a grounded theory approach to analyze qualitative data in evaluations to lead to an establishment of a theory of change. And I'm really interested in kind of unpacking each component of what I just said. So let's start with grounded theory approach. You know, maybe just kind of walk us through that. What does that really mean? Sure. Um, You know, I I think it's probably worth mentioning uh, you know, in some of my experience of working, um, particularly with like faith-based NGOs um, in an international context, a lot of a lot of folks look at qualitative data or sort of narrative data as inferior. Yeah, or you know, or or simply just anecdotal, um, and then they you know separate quantitative data as this. Well, that's our measurement. That, that's really how we know um, what kind of impact is is happening. And so I think sometimes qualitative data gets a little bit of a bad rap. And, it's just and, fundraising. Yeah, and, and I think it has like multiple uses. Um, but, you know, for us, we approach it as, you know, quantitative data tells us that something happened and qualitative data tells us why. Um, and we're really interested in looking at like large, larger amounts of, of qualitative data and trying to make meaning from it. And so grounded theory um, one of the ways that we approach that um, practically is, you know, going out and getting these really focused, um, in-depth, long exploratory interviews with folks who are engaging with our projects and transcribing those interviews, and then just kind of jumping right into the data. Um, and there's, you know, we we have a really specific coding process that we can talk a little bit about through a specific software. But really, grounded theory is, you know, you jump into the data and you just 
like kind of free flowing code um, what you can. And what I mean by code is you kind of take sections and say, well, this section seems to this person seems to be talking about compassion, or this seem this person here seems to be talking about. Um, they grew closer to their partner. Um, there was less gender-based violence in the house. And you start to code that section as, you know, gender-based violence decrease or um, increase in compassion. And you, you don't really know what you're going to find. And, and the, whole, the whole idea is that as you interact with the data, the data is telling you a story. Mm-hmm. And you have to then kind of make sense of that story. And you go in with an open mind and you allow yourself to kind of have some sort of framework when you get done. So there is definitely like a process of faith that goes into it where you're like, well, I think something's going to happen with this data. Um, and, you know, our experience has been that it it, it normally does. Um, and it's really cool what how you can kind of listen to people's voices without a preconceived idea about what they're going to say or even what you want them to say. So that's sort of grounded theory, you know, for me in a nutshell, practically how it goes. Right. I feel um, I was reading a book from Brene Brown the other day. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Um, yeah. She uh, talks about using a grounded theory approach to her writing and, and the research she uses to kind of back up her um, her arguments in her books. Um, so you, you feel like grounded theory is, is getting a little bit more traction uh, nowadays? Um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, Brene is... Uh... She could do a couple of TED Talks on it. That would probably <laughs> help it out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think – I right, I hope so because I, I think at the same time there is this kind of push for, oh, big data is the next thing and, and everyone wants to know how to engage and use big data. And for me, like, I think um, – I'm not surprised that Brene uses it because she's definitely interested in stories and she's interested in narrative and she's interested in getting at the, kind of the heart and the core of the issue – um, I think something like grounded theory brings us closer to the people that we're serving and working with, you know, and I have nothing against big data conceptually, but, you know, it, it just seems like it tends to bring us further away from those who we're trying to work with. So I hope that grounded theory is sort of the counterbalance to some of this other push. Um, but I think one of the one of the fights that we're, we're going to be up against is how to, you know, create a, a sense of rigor and um a sense of like this understanding of qualitative analysis as robust within a culture that kind of in some ways can view it as as inferior as Matt said. And I might add, jump in there and say I feel like some of the evaluation methodologies that have been started to kind of grow and bubble up recently are kind of informed by a grounded theory type of mindset. So I might say something like mm. an outcome harvesting. Yeah. Um is it's that same idea of seeing what outcomes happened um, instead of coming in with your preset indicators and saying, well, we're going to measure this, and if this didn't change, well, then nothing changed. But instead shifting it to say, well, let's see what people say and hear what outcomes are coming up from our interactions with them and then work backwards to understand how those outcomes were caused by our intervention. So I feel like that type of evaluation um, which there's a number of different, you know, forms. I, I see that growing within the development field, and I think that kind of has uh, kind of a kinship to grounded theory as well. Mm. Right. Right. Kind of moves me to my next question. Oh, we got a little bit of an oh, echo. We got a little bit of an echo. We're gonna push forward. <laughs> so, um, 
the I was kind of, you know, how do we come in, you know, looking at qualitative research or evaluation, you know, coming in without a kind of a bias? Um, You kind of touched on that a little bit, um, but would you have any, you know, for an organization that's interested in exploring this or trying this out, you know, what kind of advice would you have in kind of starting out with, you know, how do we collect qualitative data with without having our bias kind of brought into it? I think one first step is that you don't have to jump in with both feet. Um, I think sometimes, you know, if an organization is used to having very specific metrics that are tracked and all interventions of a certain type have the same metrics, you know, you're not going to be able to just throw those out, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you can kind of dabble a little (laughs) to learn, it's to kind of test some of the value. So first of all, I would say, you know, you don't have to throw out uh, your other metrics to also look at things, um, kind of look at qualitative data with an open hand. Uh, secondly, I would say, you know, thinking of, of just allowing interviews to happen or as you collect your data, allowing, you know, just having an approach of I'm not sure what exactly we'll find here. Um, and just collecting the data and being being open to what it says. I mean, it's not particularly difficult. Um, I think it's more an act of faith and trust that, you know, we can find meaning and we can find a story, even if it doesn't line up into the boxes that we put in our log frame. I don't know what you want to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I would say, you know, definitely all of, all of what Matt just said. I would probably say, too, that, you know, that, that there is – there is some skill that goes into being able to conduct these exploratory type interviews that are both flexible and allow people to go where they want, but that are, you know, say you're interviewing 20 people, well, you want to generally have the same type of questions of all 20 people, um, because that's going to help get you to these consistent themes, but also, you know, approaching it without a rigid stance. Um, I think there's some skill in that, being able to sort of navigate um, these conversations in a way that feels like it's on the path that, that you want to go on with the questions. But you're gonna, you, you want to be walking together. You don't want to be leading somebody you know, too fast or you don't want to be chasing them down. So there is, there is sort of a, a, r- a real art form to it. Um, and I think part of that comes from just maybe a sense of really a longing to know what their experience is, um, but also, you know, having that professionalism of, of someone who's, you know, a researcher, I think. I think that's a kind of a paradox at times and something that we have to kind of balance. Right. And, and so practically speaking, if you're conducting these interviews in a cross-cultural context, maybe where, you know, you don't know the language, is this something where you know, you you work with a translator who's helping to kind of navigate and manage that conversation, or, or are you are you physically present? Maybe walk us through some of the some of the details of how you actually structure an interview. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I remember in Kenya, sometimes our project managers, their language and my language would be different. And I started noticing that over time. And we had to really talk about how important words are as we are asking questions or communicating our project intent. Um, I think, 
yes, definitely. If you're using, I mean, for me, I would say, first of all, it's, I mean, this is probably common knowledge, but any amount of local language that you can pick up that is just so critical in even just trying, even looking like a fool a little bit, but, you know, trying to um, do as much as you can uh, without a translator, uh, even just to kind of show goodwill is such a great value. It connects you to the people and it kind of starts to build some relationship. But using a translator, they really need to understand what you're trying to do. And I think um, a lot of people in general don't understand kind of how interviewing works, like what kind of how to structure a kind of free-flowing yet still somewhat constrained interview with somebody. So I think preparation with your translator would be critical. I think talking about what you want out of it would be how I would usually start that conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to focus in on these domains of our work. Um, but if some, but we don't want you to feed them answers and we don't want them to feel like there's a right answer or a wrong answer, um, that they're kind of being influenced by the question too much. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would just underscore like trying to mitigate any, any power dynamics by, um, you know, talking about are these questions, um, posed in a, in in a respectful way, um, as is really important to go over that stuff beforehand. That's great. And I'm also really interested in how this all kind of leads to an establishment of a theory of change. And so maybe before we get into that in in detail, um, you know, how would you describe a theory of change? That's a term that a lot of organizations are now adopting. Um, but how do you understand it and how, do you, how would you kind of explain that to us? <laughs> yeah, it's a, we're wrestling with that too. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think the, the term can co-opt a lot of other, you know, meanings. And, um, I, I think from a very, really basic perspective, we approach a theory of change and we've, we're approaching a theory of change now with our research and in, in, into, to probably in the simplest way to just say it is a it is a let, let's call the person who engages with the project as sort of a um, a user um, or somebody who yeah like it's a we would say it's a user journey map and we understand it as a as a way to explain how people move through the different elements of a project and. W- what are the changes that happen within them as they do that? Mm-hmm. Um, so we've seen, and I, you know, we've both seen it used more for like a visual expression of a log frame um, that you know really focuses on the different arms and legs of like a project's activities and outputs and outcomes. And I think we try to strip some of that away and and just use a log frame to be a log frame and. <laughs> look at, all right, what, what are like the internal movements um, and maybe what are some of the intended behavioral changes that are happening within this person as they move through different stages of a project? Um, and that's really how we approach it. And, and for us, it's, it sort of kind of serves as these, well, these markers of change. We can mm-hmm. kind of really understand where people are as they engage. Um, and maybe even more so like, 
why some aren't and why some are more quickly. And so um, we can kind of f- feed that back into our, our learning loop and to try to um, begin to ask better questions about how we can help move people along more quickly or more honestly or more thoughtfully. Yeah, I might say that in comparison to a log frame, a log frame to me is implementer focused. The focus is on what you as the implementer are doing and what you hope to happen. Well, I would say your theory of change for, for, for us is more user focused. It's looking at how an individual interacts with those same elements and is changed by them. And kind of, you know, the journey metaphor is useful because obviously there's some change that you want to see. So there's some uh, forward movement or maybe not an end point, but a, a new beginning. That sounded a little cliche. Um, some other place that you want the users to be. And so how do they get there? What is the pathway? And I think your theory of change kind of maps that out as you interact with these activities or this element of a project, what changes um, and how does that lead you to where you're going? Right. And so how, give us an example of how this, how you're kind of using this grounded theory approach, you're getting this qualitative data you're coding it and trying to understand what story it's telling. How does that translate then into kind of the, this theory of change or journey that, that you're describing? Um, yeah, yeah. It's sort of um, – it's, it's, it's a really sort of simple process, I think. Um, probably when we try to explain it, it's going to sound way more complex than it is. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about like the – um, the, the really kind of nuts and bolts about how we went about doing this. And, and then maybe Matt can walk y- y- us through the, uh, the end result. Um, but we, we, we basically took, you know, close to what, 40, 35 yeah. interviews, um, transcribed them, put them into a program called Max QDA, which is um, a qualitative analysis software um, that allows, you know, you to do some really interactive coding, which is really nice. Um, we, we split up the interviews. I coded half, Matt coded half. And then we spl- we then we switched. And he coded mine that I had coded, and I coded his that he had previously coded. And then we returned and said, all right, what, what are we seeing here? What are the themes? Um, wait, no. We met after the first set of right. coding. We met and kind of said, what are we seeing mer- emerge? Yep, see, I already made it more complex. <laughs> um, yeah, so... So, so we coded half each, and then we met, and then said, "What, what are we seeing here?" And, and we really compared and walked through some of the stuff that we were seeing, and then we came up with sort of a provisional set of themes. Like these are the, these are kind of the codes, the, the the most frequently used codes, or maybe some of the most um, important important or, or the ones that spoke with the most amount of affect or emotion, um, meaning kind of like a, a most significant change type of thing. <laughs> and then we, we, we switched and, and recoded it, the ones um, that we hadn't coded before from one another, and um, used those provisional codes and then came back and said, all right, what did that look like? And then we came up with um, a more fixed or complete set of themes and codes, and then we recoded again. Um, and we really were combing through this data from multiple sets of eyes and multiple sets of times. And and I think that's an important thing to mention because, you know, the third or fourth time you look at something, 
you, you, you definitely don't look at it the same as you did the first time. Mm-hmm. And so the, the more you're able to go through something and the more like collaboration you have with other folks who, who may or may not look at something the same way. I mean, Matt is, you know, by trade an economist and I'm by trade a psychologist. So we're going to look at things very differently, but very complementary. And so I think it's important to, you know, have different different types of, of skills on a research team to be able to look at the, the data differently. Um, and then we came up with, yeah, like a sort of more of a, a map, a framework of what the data was saying. And then I'll have Matt just jump in and talk about what that looked like. Yeah. So just as a very brief background, um, so this is a trauma healing intervention that uh, American Bible Society implements through uh, other Bible so- local Bible societies, for example, the Bible Society of Uganda in Rwanda, um, those were the where were where the interviews were held, and the questions were about you know what change occurs within a community within a church community specifically after these projects have been first introduced, and the idea is for the church really to pick up the projects and self-sustain them. Um, which we see happen. Often pastors really get excited about this work. They see transformation in their own lives and the lives of the congregation. And so there's really this neat effect of uh, community revitalization. And so we were trying to use these interviews and the codes that we saw to say, well, where were people before the project? Where did they end up? And what were some of the waypoints or key markers that we saw in the data um, that kind of show us the pathway that they took? Um, Now, obviously, there's a bit of intuition that's required here, a bit of skill, a bit of art. Um, And let me just say this, the theory of change we came up with, the kind of the visualization we came up with, is not something that we would say is final or validated per se. It's it's informed, it's based on evidence, but it's something that we hope to use and refine over time. But what we saw was that essentially there were two different uh, primary users here. There were institutions, the churches themselves, and how they responded to the intervention, and then individuals, uh, and how you know the individual congregant would respond to the trauma healing curriculum. And so we saw different movements, uh, and some of those movements were similar, like both within the institution and within the healing groups, we saw a change in their awareness of trauma. That was one of the first steps that began to see trauma where it existed and began to recognize that, oh, this person who is closed off, this person who's getting angry, that's fighting a lot more now, uh, maybe that's because of something they've experienced in the past. So there, there was more awareness. Um Another step was empathy. Uh, There was more empathy kind of institutionally. The church began to understand empathy, especially as evidenced by the pastors showing empathy, while also congregants were also um, seeing, beginning to empathize with each other. And so it moved along, and there were a variety of steps which we don't need to get into, but all of these were linked to codes that we had used in the interviews. And so uh, we, we tried to use those themes that Brian talked about to put them together into some sort of framework of change, into this journey map. Um, and it's something that I think 
our trauma healing team has really valued as a way of understanding what change looks like and as something that they can then use to measure future interventions. And, you know, maybe the theory of change needs to adjust a little bit because it looks different in a different context, the interventions being used around the world. But um, it gives them a framework to think about what are some of the first steps that we should notice um, as we do roll out the project. Yeah, and it's, I mean, as it stands in its sort of, its current state and its um, sort of visualization is that it is sequential. I mean, you you have, these are sort of the steps, right, in moving from first interaction to, you know, um, whatever word you want to use for that transformation or, um, you know, moving toward becoming whole. Um, And, you know, we don't all we, we we certainly don't know if that sequence is true for everybody um but this uh, at least allowed us to be able to build a framework a provisional framework for saying well it, it's interesting to know the sequence that people might move through i mean this is definitely not anything new from a um a psych, from a psychological perspective people are always interested in what is it that facilitates a change within a person um and what are the steps on that, I mean, I think one of the things I think most, um, most specifically, like, kind of represents this is sort of a um, with addiction and recovery, right. and and you know how people say, well, this person is you know um, pre-contemplative versus contemplative um, versus you know, um, and they're in the maintenance stage, and and so certainly that is intended to be a more um, cyclical, like people can move back and forward in that, and and I. Th- I th- I would just say that I mean our hope is that yeah I mean we're not going to be able to come up with a, a fixed sequential pattern for how people move through the program but we we could at least begin to sort of indicate some guideposts for where they're at so the utility of this is say that the, the, there's a trainer that's going in to do a training and well one of, one of the first steps that they want to make sure that they can check off that that they're seeing and that they're they're experiencing is that some acknowledgement of what trauma is how to recognize it um and that you know has to come before empathy because you don't necessarily you don't know how to have empathy unless you can first understand what that person might be going through there's no way to understand what that person's going through until you kind of have some framework for um rationalizing or understanding some of some of their behaviors and some how they're acting so yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely has some utility for program design and implementation and, and certainly measurement and evaluation. Right. So one question I have is this idea of like markers and journey and guideposts I find very helpful. And so let's take empathy, for example. You know, we see that uh, you mentioned that pastors showing empathy, you know, has a big impact. So and that also that these kind of institutional and individual markers of change happens as the program is being implemented in these different steps. So for, mm-hmm. for empathy, for example, you know, what did you find, you know, when that change began to take place in individuals, at what step in the program did you kind of see that linking with? Yeah, um, that, was, that was pretty early on. Um, I think um, the, you know, a lot of the pastors, um, I don't want to group them all together, but I mean, certainly a, a good number of pastors 
um, when they began to understand what was sort of happening to people and um, the, there was this sense that, oh, yeah, that's what that is and that's what that means with regard to trauma and the the curriculum really walks people through kind of giving people space so that to really listen um, and a lot of these pastors were they would you know endorse that they were really quick to just give a Bible verse and pray and send people out because that's what they thought they were supposed to do and once they kind of put that intervention aside for a minute and then just would listen to people and become more I guess in a sense like more pastoral in their response to people who were suffering then they began to kind of get a a real sense of the story and the experience that a person had and then empathy would sort of come after that um is that fair to say? I mean, is that yeah and I mean within the so there's kind of different ways the curriculum can be rolled out um a lot of the pastors were trained as facilitators. It's a trainer of trainer models. And so they would go through the whole curriculum in a three or four day training session. And so that gave them kind of a pretty big intensive dose of um, how we would say God relates to the brokenhearted, uh, different tools to understand grief, to understand suffering within a biblical framework. And so that I think really within that first three or four days that gave a especially the pastors um i think it brought them to a place of self-awareness and brought them pretty close to empathy and then when they went back to their congregations you know as they were being becoming aware of oh that's what's going on here oh you know you know Mm -hmm. that's the reason why this person is acting that way um Mm-hmm. We saw them say things like, oh, now I started to understand. And before I would just kind of write them off or say that, well, maybe they're sinful. But now I understood that maybe something deeper was happening. And the next step after that was they started to change their ministry, which was really cool. They started to do more what if we would might call like pastoral counseling. They might start leading healing groups themselves within their congregation or even kind of doing evangelistic efforts with uh, this trauma healing as one of the centerpieces. So that's kind of how it came within the uh, the interventions timeline. But I, yeah, I think it's important to kind of underscore that empathy definitely was the sort of the, the change catalyst the in, in this process. I mean, once they sort of began to move closer in posture to those who were suffering in the church, um, the growth of the church was um, really encouraging. But it had, I mean, that was sort of this catalytic effort. Um, and it really set in motion a lot of other, a lot of other changes in the church. Right. I, um, this is an incredibly interesting and fascinating. And I find, um, the journey metaphor very helpful and how that corresponds with different parts of the intervention. I think this could be uh, the, uh, another podcast. We'll have to bring you back on uh, to, to discuss <laughs> in more detail in the future. But I think this is a really great introduction and, and something that I think will, um, will help organizations interested in this. Um, for those who are interested in learning more, what resources would you recommend um, or do you have any resources that you'd be willing to share? 
No. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't share anything. Um, no, that's a that's a that's a great that's a great question, Ronnie. Um, I I love to be able to kind of come up with a more comprehensive list. Maybe that's something I could. Um, we could put together and post on the the Accord Research Alliance LinkedIn page or something like that. Yeah. And we're kind of in the process of finalizing um, what we did, and we're we're presenting it uh, at the CAPS, the Christian Association for Psychological Studies, studies yeah. uh, conference in Norfolk, Virginia, in April. Uh, and maybe looking to get it published. So at that point, it would be a lot more available. Um, but yeah, and we're, we're always happy. People can contact us. We're very friendly folk. And uh, yeah, yeah, we'd be we'd, we'd really love to, you know, talk talk through any of this stuff with with folks. But um, I think, you know, p- part of it is just digging into the resources that are out there. I mean, I know, you know I, I like to get, get on better evaluation um, dot com and and other things and and um the overseas development institute and, and just checking out a lot of different things and really integrating a lot of like seemingly disparate sort of resources um and then thankfully we have the creative license to just kind of run with things yeah. <laughs> um which makes it um, a little bit easier because i don't i don't know if there are really pointed resources out there that can walk you through some of this i think it's a lot of it is just you know being okay with failing um, and realizing that that's just part of figuring out what to do a little bit better next time. Right. And as Matthew shared earlier, there really is an art to it, which I, I really appreciated. Um, I guess it's, it's both an art and a science and, and requires both of those skill sets at times. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we'll make a list of, Uh, resources and make it available as a part of the podcast and um, put your contact information there for those who are interested maybe in more specific questions so i just want to thank thank you both for for coming on the podcast today yeah thank you so much thank you ronnie appreciate it and i'll look forward to future conversations and so uh, everybody else who's listening thank you for joining and have a great rest of your day